Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, co-host David Booth of OnDeck and and our featured guest, uh, Andrew Wilkinson of Tiny. David, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. Awesome. Uh, Andrew, so we're going to get into a lot of, lot of different topics today, but to, uh, to start with, with, by way of introduction, big question for you. When, when you look back at the, the arc of your career, past uh, and then present and future, what's the, the thread that, that ties it together or the thread that you keep pulling? Or put differently, you, know, you said a few years ago, you're building the, the Berkshire Hathaway of, of the internet. H- how do you describe your, your life's work and, and what, you're, what you're trying to do? Oh, man. Well, I, to be honest, a lot of it is uh, laziness and delegation. So my original goal when I started my business was just to make enough money that I could wake up when I wanted. I've always been a night owl. And uh, I always hated working for other people. And so I remember telling myself back in 2005 that if I can just make five grand a month, I'll be set and I can do whatever I want and have a great life. And I just kind of surpassed that goal by accident and ended up, uh, you know, 15 years later, owning 25 companies and having hundreds of employees and getting into investing and all, all sorts of other stuff. And I'm happy to share the um, story of how that all happened. But ultimately, it's, it's really just come down to me <laughs> delegating things I don't enjoy. And when you start doing that, you, uh, your output increases massively and things scale a lot faster than anticipated. And so, you know, it's pretty cool for me all these years later to wake up every morning and know that we had, you know, hundreds of people doing all sorts of incredible stuff, ranging from writing code and designing web apps to uh, baking bread and checking in hotel guests. So it's been a, a fun, fun ride. Yeah, amazing. Talk about how you've built the portfolio, what's in the portfolio, and then, you know, if you're in the podcast, uh, you know, five years from now, what do you hope is, is it comes into the portfolio uh, in that interim? What do you want to add into yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really think of it as a portfolio. We're much more of a kind of family of companies. Um, I mean, I think it'd be helpful if I just zoom out and share kind of the story of how it all happened. And I think mm-hmm. that'll explain everything. So yeah, growing up, uh, I grew up in Vancouver, Canada, um, which is a very uh, beautiful city. But to me, I always kind of felt like Vancouver, which was, you know, a city of like a million and a half people. That seemed really small to me. I was really excited to go explore the world and go move to New York or San Francisco or something like that. And so uh, when in 10th grade, my dad came to me and said, hey, uh, great news. We're moving to Victoria. Uh, I thought my life was over. I don't know if you guys know Victoria, but Victoria is kind of uh, a small city on Vancouver Island. It's about 350,000 people, a little sleepy, very, very beautiful. But my uh, my dad had an architecture firm and it merged with one over here. And so suddenly I find myself moving to an even smaller place where I don't know anybody. I've got to start fresh with new friends in high school. And uh, I have this summer before school starts and uh, I ended up because I didn't know anyone and I was in this boring city and I had nothing to do I ended up spending a lot of time on the internet and 
I started learning how to build websites and I realized that I absolutely love doing it. And so um, I ended up teaming up with uh, another teenager in Hawaii and we just started fooling around and building this uh, tech news site. And the tech news site actually took off and started getting quite a bit of traffic. We started breaking stories. And, you know, one of the benefits of it was I would email uh, any any technology company in the world and say, hey, I would love to review your product. And they would just send me free stuff. So, uh, you know, every week, like a FedEx guy with thousands of dollars of electronics would show up at my door. And uh, I get to, you know, just play with all this cool um, tech stuff. And so I absolutely love this. And uh, very quickly, I went, hey, you know, I really, I love running this site. I love overseeing it, but I don't actually love doing the writing. So uh, we started finding uh, other teenagers who we could delegate the writing to. Uh, and eventually, you know, before we knew it, we were managing a staff of other teenagers who were writing, you know, news, news reports and rumors and reviews and all sorts of other stuff. We're getting quite significant traffic. And we got to the point where we could actually sell advertising on the site. So, you know, I remember in uh, 10th grade, sitting in my parents' bedroom, whispering into the phone while, while negotiating an ad deal with Microsoft executives. And so I was just kind of thrust into this weird world of management and business super, super early. And I absolutely loved it. But I never recognized that it was business. I thought, hey, I guess I'm doing uh, journalism or, you know, I don't know what you would call it, writing or, or being an editor. And so to me, like business was this thing that my dad brought home in a briefcase looking kind of tired and dejected uh, every evening. I, I, it was like stock charts in the newspaper. It was just total meaningless garbage to me and I had no interest. And so um, I didn't go to business school. Uh, I basically almost failed high school because I was so busy running this website. And when I graduated, uh, I went to my father and I said, dad, you know, I love doing this internet stuff. I want to keep doing uh, what I'm doing. And I remember we were driving down the street and he slammed the brakes on our rusty old Volvo, pointed at a gas station. And he said, you're going to be working there if you don't go to school. And so he ended up talking me into going to journalism school because that seemed like the closest thing to what I was doing. And because I didn't understand business whatsoever, I ended up giving just giving away this site to um, another another uh, teenager who had been working with, um, and I go to journalism school in Toronto, and it's freezing cold. I'm dead broke, and on day one of uh, class, the professor kind of rallies us all together and says, "I hope you love journalism because all of the professors that are teaching in here just got laid off by all the big papers. This is a dying industry." And you better be really passionate about it because you're never going to make any money. And I wasn't entirely motivated by making money, but it was something I really cared about. I, um, I came from a family that, you know, never had a lot of extra money. We were, you know, okay, comfortable. We weren't fighting to eat, but we were always stressed out about, uh, you know, money and living kind of paycheck to paycheck. And so that was really uninteresting to me. And then on top of it, they were teaching us how to write for print newspapers, which it was pretty obvious to me uh, was not the right thing to learn. And so after a couple months of that, I dropped out, I moved back home, and I decided I'm going to move to Silicon Valley. I'm going to follow my dreams. I'm going to go work at Apple or Google or something like that. 
And uh, because I was broke and living in my parents' basement, I needed a way to make some money. And this is in um, 2005, 2006. And so there's all sorts of venture businesses starting to get funded in Silicon Valley after the dot-com crisis. And I realized that none of them really got design. At the time, design was not something that people spent a lot of time on. If you had a startup, you would hire 10 or 20 developers. They would sit in a room for a year. They'd build your MVP. And then maybe, maybe if you're um, if the CEO really cared, they would hire you know a design firm or they'd bring in a designer to kind of put lipstick on a pig. It's not what it is today where every startup starts with design. And so I was lucky enough to spot that opportunity and see that there was all these kind of new web apps coming out that needed design. And so instead of starting where a lot of people start with um, freelancing and stuff where they'd go to local businesses, I just started calling startups. So I would read the tech news and see who got funded. And I would call the CEO or email the CEO and say, Hey, um, I'm up in Canada. I've got this agency and you should work with me. And it was the other insight is instead of saying, you know, Hey, I'm some guy from Canada, I would say, Hey, I've got this agency and I branded, I came up with the name metal lab designed this super cool site that made me look very sophisticated and, and, you know, sizable. Um, and in reality, it was just me and my underwear living in my parents' basement, uh-huh. but I was good at talking and I'd done so much business throughout my teen years that I was actually able to convince people to, you know, pay me a reasonable amount and give me a chance. And so very quickly, um, um, in the first couple of months, you know, I started making twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a month, and I'm going, well, this is amazing. You know, I can do whatever I want. Uh, I get to work on all these amazing problems with really interesting startups, um, and you know, I'm getting paid U.S. dollars, but living in Canada, and so I had pretty high profit margins, and I just kept doing that. I never moved to Silicon Valley. I kept getting more and more clients just through word of mouth because, again, no one was doing what we were doing and, you know, we were pretty good at it. And uh, I started hiring my first couple people and that's how uh, Metal Lab got started. And so what ended up happening was um, because I was living in Canada, I would fly down to Silicon Valley, I would do a whole bunch of meetings and I would just never mention I was in Canada. I wouldn't hide it if someone asked me. But people just assumed we were based in San Francisco. And so, and there was kind of a market price to charge. And so we charged the market price. So I'd fly down to Silicon Valley. I'd do all the client relationships, close all the deals, fly back up to Victoria. And I started building a team up here. And in Canada, in Victoria especially, um, you know, we could pay exceptional, you know, high market salaries, but still make a good profit margin. And so, agencies typically are actually not very good businesses. They usually have like, you know, 5% margins and we could operate with much higher margins. And so I had um, a good problem, uh, which was we were profitable and we were spitting out cash and I had no idea what to do with it. And around that time, I started reading about Basecamp and following Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer Hansen. And I looked at these the SaaS business that they were building And I was so jealous. My business, you know, I had to get on planes. I had to close deals. There was always, um, you know, you always had to put the train down, the track down in front of the train and win your next project. With uh, their business, they could build software once and they could sell it to people passively 
on a self-serve model and make money while they slept on a recurring basis. And so that appealed to me. And so I started building uh, my first SaaS product, which was called Ballpark. And it was basically software to help me run my agency. So, you know, at MetaLab, we were constantly sending out estimates and doing time tracking. So logical thing was, hey, why don't we build some software to help us with that? And I'm sure there's some other agencies that want the same thing. So we launched it and uh, it was, you know, it was an okay success. We made, you know, a reasonable amount of money for what it was and how much it cost us. Um, but I started realizing, you know, some of the challenges of SaaS and R&D and competing with venture businesses and stuff. Um, I ended up starting another SaaS company called Flow, uh, which was a very early uh, project management, kind of a Sana competitor, uh, which we still own today. Um, and then I also started a business called Pixel Union, where we partnered with Shopify back when they were about 10 people to help them power to basically help power their themes marketplace so we brought great design to the shopify platform um, and built a whole bunch of um, themes for the platform and that was kind of an accidental business we kind of thought that this was something that um, we would do as a favor to the team at shopify because we really liked them and maybe we'd make a little bit of money but it ended up up turning into a um, very sizable business and so where that left me was i was running an agency I was running two SaaS software companies. I was running a rapidly growing digital goods and themes business. Um, and then I had a bunch of other dumb business ideas, which I, that are too stupid to mention. So I was running all these different companies. Um, you know, I had like 50 employees or something by this point. And I kept doing that until about 2012. And in 2012, I just hit a complete wall. I was running too many companies at once. I didn't really understand how to hire executives. Um, all the companies were jumbled together, and I really was just kind of unhappy and overwhelmed. And so I was pouring my heart, heart out to a friend of mine, and he said, dude, why don't you just sell one of these companies? That'll take the pressure off. That'll put some money in your jeans. You can kind of figure out what you want to do next. You can start investing. And so I did that. I ended up selling Pixel Union to a family office. And uh, suddenly I went from, you know, I'd always had cash flow but I suddenly had money on the balance sheet. I had cash, a pile of cash to do something with. And I realized that it wasn't sustainable to just keep growing more and more or starting more and more businesses. I realized starting businesses was very, very difficult. And, you know, I really needed to just focus on the existing portfolio of companies that we already had. And so I started looking at stocks, real estate, conventional investments, And those things were always very foreign to me, but I had always heard the name Warren Buffett and I didn't really know what to think of him. And one day I picked up a book uh, about him and started reading. And when I read about this guy who, you know, has 70, 70 plus businesses, 400,000 employees, but spends all of his time reading, talking to interesting people, buying new companies and really doing whatever the hell he wants all day. You know, he famously brags about uh, having nothing on his calendar. I just didn't understand that it was possible to have so many different businesses and have so be doing so many things without actually running them all. And that sounded pretty good to me. And so I went deeper and deeper and continued to read about his company, Berkshire Hathaway, and the history of it. And I went, you know, this doesn't seem like rocket science. I think we could actually do this. And 
we had over the years spoken to private equity firms and, you know, we'd gotten, you know, people had been interested in buying the businesses and over and over and over again, they just made it way too hard. So it'd be this kind of miserable three to six month trudge of, you know, really, really deep diligence, um, you know, tons and tons of in-person meetings and generally just a lot of wasted time and energy and renegotiation. And so I started thinking about, um, you know, what would the founder focused version of this be? Who would I have wanted to sell to if I had sold my business? And so um, at that time, um, you know, my, my business partner, Chris, and I formalized uh, our holding company, Tiny, and we started buying businesses instead of starting them. And so um, we hired CEOs to run all of our existing businesses, which had a few speed bumps, but for the most part, uh, went really well. And we started buying these wonderful internet businesses that were founder run. And we realized we just had this great advantage because we're founders ourselves and we're operators and we know the problems that founders have and what they do want to hear and don't want to hear. And, you know, ultimately people, we realized that people want a great home. They don't just want the maximum amount of money on the best terms that they actually also care about their employees well-being, the longevity of the company that the company will exist in five or 10 years, that the brand won't be tarnished and really that their life's work will be protected. And so, um, you know, very quickly we were able to kind of establish this brand and start working with, um, you know, the founders of Dribble and all sorts of other incredible businesses to figure out, you know, a long-term home for their businesses. And so we've been doing that for about seven years um, we're up to about 25, I, th- I think 25 businesses, 20 to 25, something like that. And, uh, and then on the side, just as a result of working with a lot of interesting, um, you know, venture investors, private equity investors, um, entrepreneurs, we've also just passively made a bunch of venture investments. And so we've made about 80 venture investments. To be honest, a lot of that was more just to support people in our network and it was just kind of a happy, you know, happy accident. It's us putting down roulette chips on people we like to support them. Um, but, you know, over time, that's also become a sizable portfolio. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, 15 years later, I've kind of stumbled my way from, you know, freelancer to entrepreneur to, uh, you know, board member and investor. Um, and, and really, I never would have predicted where I would be. But, you know, today... I think we have um, over 400 employees and 25 businesses, um, you know, and all these different, you know, disparate investments. Um, And uh, I just love, I love my work. I, you know, get to chat with interesting people like you guys every single day, uh, look at great investments. And then I work with our portfolio um, CEOs and uh, I'm just having the time of my life. And I get to do it all from the middle of nowhere in Victoria. So uh, it's a good life. Love it. It's uh, inspiring on, on several dimensions. I mean, it's interesting as the venture studio model is getting more and more popular, you are doing something different, you know, something like private equity for, for startups. And I'm cur- curious if, if we are going to see a lot more people follow in, in your footsteps. So one of curious you can comment on that. And then I have other questions about, you know, how you think about minority versus majority ownership, how you think about future liquidity for that founder, how you think about whether do you invest on the balance sheet or, or raise and manage external capital? 
yeah, why don't we why don't we do this one at a time? So the Venture Studio is actually what we attempted. Now, Venture Studio would typically be like Betaworks, where they go out and raise a hundred million dollars, and they say we're going to incubate a whole bunch of ideas um, with founders in house, you know, with lower equity and stuff like that. We what we did was similar in that we had this design agency with incredible design and engineering talent, and we had businesses we wanted to build, and so. You know, the way I built Ballpark and Flow was going to, you know, our best developer and saying, hey, look, I know you're working really hard. Do you want to work in the evenings and weekends with me on this fun new project? And, you know, we'll see what it turns into. And so it was really just kind of us internally hacking. Now, what I learned over time was when you're doing, first of all, when you're doing it in an agency, clients always come first. So, you know, if we have a contract with Amazon and Amazon has a deadline. I'm not going to pull people off of that contract. And so what it ended up meaning was we would kind of, it would, it would go in fits and starts. And um, we really weren't giving comp- the com- each company the attention it deserved. And in general, what I saw happening over time as we did that, you know, we would kind of spin the companies out. They'd have their own teams, but they had a lot of shared resources. So an example is like marketing might be shared across multiple companies. And we just see that over and over and over again, people gravitate to what they like, whatever's easy for them and they have fun with. And so if you have a marketing team and you have one business that's easy to market and the other one that's more of a challenge or where things aren't working as well, you end up naturally people deprioritize those businesses. And so I don't think it's the best way to realize the best, you know, the highest opportunity. And you see the same thing in public companies where, um, you know, eBay had uh, PayPal as a subsidiary that was deeply integrated. They spin it out and there's just tons of value created because suddenly you have this management team that wakes up every morning and thinks of one thing. How do we grow PayPal? Not how do we exist in this, you know, synergized group of um, different properties and stuff. Um, So generally what we do is we fully separate every single business so every business at Tiny has its own finance team, its own CFO, its own CEO. And if it was to split off, it would be able to operate fully independently. And our head office basically just oversees. So we don't actually have any functional services within the head office. Totally. Uh, should we get, uh, you want me to re- rephrase some of the other questions? Yeah, why don't, why don't we do one at a time? Oh, sorry. The minority versus majority one. Ownership. Yeah, so... Generally, what we're looking for is majority. Minority is something that we'll do if, I think it's like, if it's a passive investment. So, you know, an example would be our investment in Buffer. We followed Buffer for, you know, three or four years before we invested. We really, really admired the company. We admired their approach to bootstrapping and profitability. And I just always said, if I ever get the chance to buy some stock in that business, I would love to. And so we own a majority, sorry, a minority stake in Buffer. And we're very happy with that because we love what the management team is doing and we're able to acquire the shares at a reasonable price. But that's not our primary business. Our primary business is to have, you know, majority and control stakes in businesses and just to really let them sit and hire great management and do their thing. And when we're in a minority position, we just can't do that. We can't give people that same latitude. 
One thing that Eric referenced was uh, a post you wrote, I think, I think it was Berkshire Hathaway, and it seems to be a common theme. And one thing that Berkshire is um, you know, famous for is its pricing power and, and ability to um, you know, engage with great companies, um, wholly owned but still retain and, and, and maintain their management over time. But the, the pricing power is one thing that's uh, you know, notably very much harder in tech. Um, you know, often just traditional revenue multiples and metrics don't really don't really you know, get you far. Um, I'd love to hear how you think about um, either a minority or a majority um, acquisition of stock and, and how do you price that? How do, how do you, you know, quantify the value of that? Yeah, I think it's really, really hard when you're talking about businesses that are in the growth stage, right? So businesses that are growing at 40 to 100% a year and that aren't being run for profits, I have a really hard time buying those businesses because at the end of the day, if I'm going to spend $100,000, I need a way to get $100,000 back over the next five or 10 years. Um, That's really how investment works. I need to make a return on my money. And so what we're looking for is usually a business that has already proved the model and is profitable. And we can pay a multiple on those earnings. It's much less common that we buy a business where it's not yet profitable. It's unproven. We have to come in and sprinkle a bunch of magic pixie dust and growth to get it there. We've done a few investments like that that are more just kind of passion projects. But generally what we're doing is we're looking at the earnings and we're going, what's a fair price for these earnings given the growth of the business and the quality of the business? Um, how long can these earnings continue? What are the risks? And um, you know, the higher quality of the business, the larger the, um, you know, the larger the valuation we're willing to give. So, you know, a business that has a great moat, like a, you know, social network with network effect, I'll pay a hell of a lot more for that than something that's reliant on Google and affiliate marketing and, you know, where the revenue could disappear tomorrow. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, One thing that uh, is becoming more popular as well and thinking about those types of businesses, you know, ones that are reliant upon uh, advertising growth or whatever it might be, um, is the the mode of financing them and just con- you know, continually raising more and more venture capital isn't necessarily the healthiest thing for for anyone, um, but particularly not for um, you know those e commerce players. Um, how, there, there's some alternate uh, alternatives popping up today though, things like ClearBank, you know, revenue based financing, um, just traditional debt certainly. I mean, how do you think about you know when to apply uh, debt or, or equity to a, one of these businesses, either that you're you know, uh, acquiring a, a majority stake in or otherwise? Well, we don't We don't really, as a general rule, raise additional rounds for our businesses. Usually, you know, we there's one time where we bought a business with a partner because we wanted to experiment with uh, working with someone. And that was something where we had no fees or carry. It was literally like a friend of mine who said, hey, I want to buy a business with you. And so we split some of the equity, even though we're kind of the ones managing the day-to-day. And so usually these are businesses that can stand on their own two feet and there's no need to raise additional capital. You know, we do basic stuff around debt. So, you know, we have credit lines for the businesses. It's just a basic best practice where we look at it and go, okay, there's $500,000 in accounts receivable. There's a 30 day, you know, net, net 30 on those invoices. Okay. Well, we'll have a credit line for 300 grand. And so we'll dip into that if needed to pay for ads or something like that. But generally, we're not using a ton of leverage and, you know, we're not really raising additional equity for growth. There are a few businesses that we've 
kind of accidentally started within the group um, where we have raised venture, but that's really not what we do. That's just kind of an exception to the rule. Berkshire invests off the balance sheet. Most private equity firms manage funds for external investors. Where do you sit? Balance sheet. So we we have no outside LPs. We have no investors. Um, it's all me and my business partner Chris and our personal capital, and it's all been compounded from the original the original business Metal Lab. How do you think about founder uh, liquidity? Is is there a risk of founders checking out a- after sale, or or and even broader, what's the right archetype for the founder that they're ambitious enough to want to grow a business, but not so ambitious that they need to own it all? Well, we're not we're not very precious about that. So my ideal buy. Um, often is a founder who's been running the business for say eight to 10 years. It's their primary thing. They've done an incredible job and, you know, they've grown a great business that's profitable and growing over time and stuff, but they actually want to leave. Often, often the founders we work with are saying, look, if I sell the private equity, they're going to lock me, you know, they're going to golden handcuff me to the radiator for five years. They're going to put me in a big earnout. Um, you know what? I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm burnt out. I still want to be tangentially involved or I still want to be a shareholder, but I'm really ready to pass the baton. And um, often when a founder passes the baton and, you know, the reason we're comfortable with this is because we are operators and these are relatively simple businesses for the most part. But when they pass the baton, there's always a lot of opportunities. So usually I always like to say to a man with a hammer or a woman with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And we, what we find is that every CEO has a specific hammer. They have one superpower that they're really, really good at. Um, that could be product. It could be marketing. It could be sales, it could be operations and process, or it could be finance. And usually they, they do one thing. So we'll see usually the kind of companies we buy are usually kind of in the design space or tech space. And so they're often started by designers, developers, people that really, really care about product. And what we love about that is that, the, you know, we're buying wonderful products that people love, but often they've grown organically. So often they're not following marketing best practices. Often they don't have a sales team, you know, often underpricing. There's almost always like simple things that we look at and go, oh, wow, we can layer in a few additional things by hiring, you know, a really exceptional CEO or new management team. And often we're able to, you know, double earnings within a few years if we can run the right playbook. And, you know, the founders love it because a, they got to leave on day one. They got all the money up front. They still own, you know, a certain percent of the business. And now their equity is way more valuable. And in terms of liquidity, we issue dividends. So whenever there's excess profit and if we don't need it to buy back shares or to grow the business, we just issue dividends. And so, you know, you wouldn't see that in a private equity firm. You'd see private equity gets in they handcuff the CEO to the business for five years. And then you've got a three to five year time horizon to resell the business where the CEO will probably get looped into another earnout of some kind. And at the end of the day, you know, maybe they're going to force you to sell to some thousand person Indian outsourcing company or something that is a culture mismatch to you. And you end up putting, getting, you know, kind of selling your soul to this private equity firm. So we try and take an approach of, um, you know, we're going to hold the business for the long term. We're going to run it sustainably and profitably. And we're going to keep the culture alive, you know, based on what they were doing at the time that we uh, bought it. 
what sectors are, are you looking to, to buy or, or incubate or, or invest in in the next uh, you know, few years? Well, I'm not somebody who's like, I don't usually have like a thesis around different strategies or whatever. We will look at almost any anything. I generally like boring businesses, to be honest. Uh, Charlie Munger has this great quote. He says, fish where the fish are. And what that means is, you know, if you get excited about crypto or AI or something like that, if you think of that as a fishing hole, it's a huge fishing hole with huge opportunity and a ton of big fish in them. But there's, you know, a thousand other entrepreneurs and other fishermen surrounding the fishing hole. And they have all manner of, um, you know, different tackle boxes and fishing rods and stuff. And they're just fishing the shit out of this fishing hole. Charlie Munger, you know, by Charlie Munger is thinking you want to go off and find a quiet fishing hole with ample fish where no one's really paying attention. And there's a couple other sleepy fishermen. So a lot of the businesses we own are not sexy. They're not, you know, super crazy innovative. They're not reinventing the wheel. They're doing kind of sleepy, boring, good, basic things um, like helping people find jobs or helping connect designers and share work for feedback. I, you know, I'm very interested in the podcasting space, but I do think it's a bit of a gold rush. And so we're trying to figure out um, whether there's an opportunity for us to participate or not. We're really excited about subscription podcasting specifically. So we've um, worked with a bunch of friends of ours just kind of for fun to help them monetize their podcast via subscription as opposed to advertising. And some of the numbers that we're seeing are pretty staggering where these podcasters' businesses are super high margin and they start to look like the world's best SaaS business. Um, so, you know, we've got um, podcasters we work with, with, you know, two employees and uh, one of them, one of whom is like a part-time audio engineer and they can make, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars a month recurring and growing, you know, 20 plus percent a year with a few people. So it, it's quite, that's quite an interesting area. Uh, and I wrote a medium post about that, about how I think Howard Stern is getting ripped off by Sirius. Howard Stern's only making $90 million a year. He should be making like 200 million a year. So anyway, that, that's a space I'm super excited about. But I'll, honestly, I'll look at almost anything as long as I can understand it. It's at a fair price. And uh, it's something, you know, within our circle of confidence where I think we can uh, add value and sleep at night owning. One thing, um, I mean, this, this is fascinating. Thank you. Um, I personally come from a, a background internationally. I've worked uh, across New Zealand, Australia, and, and London and the UK. Um, one trend that's obvious to me in those markets is there's lots of people building software-enabled businesses that are genuine, you know, genuinely quite valuable. Um, they probably perform like a local service, though, or maybe they interact with a local regulation, and because of that, then maybe they're never going to be billion-dollar venture-style Silicon Valley outcomes. Do you think that there's an opportunity in this geographic uh, arbitrage as well as, you know, the, the the single service can serve anyone anywhere that most typical SaaS businesses are looking for? And, and I mean, do you invest outside of the U.S. as the as punchline, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, I'll look at generally when I think about investing outside of the U.S., I mean, it's different traditional private equity. Um, let's say they're buying a manufacturing business in Ukraine, right? There's a lot of. Um, risk around, um, you know, what the rule of law is like and what local permits and, you know, all sorts of uh, regulatory issues there. For us, if I buy a business in the Ukraine, unless um, it's staying in the Ukraine, most of the businesses we own operate on the internet remotely. 
And so I would buy a great business located anywhere in the world, as long as it can operate, you know, we can move it to Canada or, um, or keep it in a country with, you know, strong rule of law and, you know, good regulation and that kind of stuff. So I don't think a lot about that in terms of the internet enabled services. I think you can build great businesses in that space, but it just seems really hard to me. So, you know, anyone who has to be responsible for thousands and thousands of contract employees to deliver a service, I think it just gets really challenging over time. And you can see that with a lot of these kind of Uber for X startups where, hey, we're going to make a marketplace where you can get a car wash on the street in 10 minutes or less by a team of people or they'll go and clean the house or whatever. Um, I think those can be good businesses in a small market, but I, I really wouldn't want to run one personally. I just think it sounds like a headache. Yeah, totally. One, one thing that um, I'd be fascinated in your, your take on, it kind of harks back to the valuation question a little bit, is um, some of the, the businesses in the Berkshire portfolio are enduring brands, you know, the Coca-Colas and the, um, the, the very uh, long-serving businesses. In software, the cycle rates can be much faster and and something like SaaS in particular, I know sort of this first generation of software as a service was in many ways unbundling Excel or providing a specific use case, CMS or a CRM for a particular industry. Um, now there's more generalized tools like Airtable is disrupting that first wave. So it almost seems like there was a specialization and then a generalization uh, era. Is there opportunity? I mean, the, the question is, uh, do you still see opportunities to do you know, very specific applications of, of software businesses and, and industries or, or is something like Airtable going to you know, come through and disrupt those? And how does that factor into your valuation? I mean, do, you ha- do you have to have a business that is going to survive for, for 50 years or, or can you get your, uh, your, your money back effectively in a, in a shorter time frame? I'm, I'm, always, I'm always saying, how do I get my money back in five years? That, you, know, in a, you know, whether it's via growth or just um, organic or whatever, whatever the business is already doing. That's generally how I'm thinking about it Um, because, you know, the risk in internet businesses is that you really can only predict the next six to 12 months realistically. And if you have a really exceptional internet business, maybe you can predict the next five years, but so many businesses that we look at, they have something that can sweep out from under them, Um, like a wholesale transferring problem where one of their P and L line items can just suddenly blow up. So for example, you know, a business that has, that gets 50% of its traffic via Google, an algorithm can change that. Be Google buyers paid, um, paid customers via Google or Facebook, that cost per acquisition can go from $1 to $10. Um, and so I try and look for businesses that don't have that level of variability. I said it in a tweet the other day, um, you know, a great business should be like New Zealand. It should be energy independent. It should be in the middle of nowhere where no one's paying attention. Um, you know, it shouldn't have to ship everything in. And a lot of these businesses start to look like countries that are, you know, they have this extreme um, reliance on uh, other people being benevolent to them. And I try and avoid those businesses. Totally. You, you, you were interested in, board, in boards, job boards. Is, is that sort of strategic to serve the other uh, family of companies or how do you think about sort of strategic things that help make uh, make the overall family valuable? I don't really, I don't think about strategic things really. You know, the one 
it's very tempting, right? The way that the, you know, you could call our business a conglomerate. Conglomerate is a family of companies or a holding company that owns a whole bunch of companies. And the way that conglomerates often fall down is you go and you buy all these great companies and it's very tempting to start saying things like, hey, all of these companies do accounting. Why don't we centralize accounting? Or, hey, all of these companies um, pay for cell phones. Why don't we have a procurement team up in head office that does all of the cell phone negotiations and saves us money? And, you know, very quickly, you start to become this synergized nightmare where all the CEOs feel disempowered and annoyed and all the different companies are kind of doing each other favors. We always say to our CEOs, they're under no obligation to help any of the other companies unless it makes sense for them to do that. I've just really avoided that. There are exceptions. Like we started a business called Double Up, which is a, uh, a marketing business focused on podcasters and startups. And you know, it was born out of, we had a whole bunch of podcasters who were asking us for help to grow their business. And we were just kind of passionate about it and wanted to help them. And then we also had within our portfolio, we had tons of the companies that were too small to have a marketing team, but needed help with marketing. And so instead of starting a marketing department, we said, well, we'll start a new business called Double Up and Double Up will need to sit on it, stand on its own two feet, have its own customers. But if it works out and if it makes sense, we'll also serve our own our own businesses. But you know, even that I'm skeptical of. Like I'm always I'm always worried about synergizing. Yeah, really. You've said a few times now um, that you do. You have started a few businesses. You also said you know you're not necessarily building a venture studio intentionally, like like some have set out to do. But it seems like there's something in the middle here. And, and I mean, one thing that that we do at, at On Deck is, is you know, On Deck is trying to be the, the first place that best people look to start or join something. You said there's this incredible flow of of talented people um, thinking about building startups. Um, I, mean, I, I was wondering if you could describe a little bit the profiles of people that you might you know, be looking to hire into your companies or you might be looking to co-found businesses with um, and maybe a little bit about what the venture creation process looks like. I mean, can these people expect to be equity holders and the, the businesses you build with them or are they going to be you know, primarily employees and, and, and filling a, a, a more defined role? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we don't want to be, we really don't want to be a venture studio. Like for the last seven years, I used to be the guy who would have a flash of flash of genius in the shower and I'd think of some great new business and idea. And then by the afternoon, I've started the business and started hiring people. And I realized that starting companies is hard and it often doesn't work out. And so, I, you know, I really want to focus on buying great businesses and improving them. And I spent you know, the last um, seven years, really trying to uh, reduce that muscle, that instinct to always start new businesses. Any businesses that we've started over the last couple of years have been simply to give me something that's an outlet for me to start, you know, get a little bit out of starting new businesses. Or if there's an idea that just slaps us in the face so hard that we go, okay, this has to exist. But even then, we will hire a CEO and we'll say, okay, we'll talk to you in six months. So we're not really like we're, we're co-founding the businesses in that we might have the idea um, and we might spin something up. Um, but we're still following that same playbook of finding a great CEO and giving them the tools they need and then just stepping away. So I really don't want to be a studio in that way. And to be honest, 
I don't actually want to start more businesses. You know, we've only started a few because they are such great opportunities and we're so excited about them. And we have, you know, we happen to have someone from one of our businesses who wants to leave and start a new business and it just all lines up. So I wouldn't say, you know, people who want to start a business with us, you know, don't start emailing me and pitching us on businesses to co-found together because it's not really something we want to do a lot more of. And then in terms of the equity thing, uh, you know, every comp plan is different for different CEOs. Generally, the, the time we'll give equity is when a business is super, super early. And otherwise, we just focus on paying people really, really great cash comp. Um, you know, very, we have some um, CEOs who make a very, very good living, um, you know, akin to running a public company, um, running our private businesses with, you know, very little oversight and they have wonderful lives and, you know, people have been very happy with that as long as, you know, the results that they give us kind of, they have a way to benefit from that and there's alignment. And so we think a lot about incentives and spend a lot of time um, figuring out how to align ourselves with our CEOs. And uh, generally, that's focused on cash comp. Yeah. What's the staff or, or skills and services that you need to have uh, HQ, uh, you know, in-house at Tiny? So all we do at the head office is buy more businesses and, um, you know, so allocate capital um, and acquire new business. Or sorry, all we do is um, allocate capital and oversee the businesses. So most of our time is spent you know, getting like, we get it, we get a report from every single business once a month. That's just numbers. And then we get a quarterly report from each CEO. That's more of a, Hey, here's what's going well. Here's what's going poorly. Here's a few areas I would love your opinion on um, as well as results. And so we spend time digging into those. And if we spot anything, you know, we're concerned about, we'll, we might call up the CEOs and chat with them. So it's a little bit of that kind of oversight. And then we're just looking at deals. And we probably look at, I don't know, 100, 100 deals a month, and we might engage deeply with one or two. What's the end game here? Is it, is it to list? I don't think so. I mean, I look at it and go, in what way does my life get better if we you know, take the company public? It's not something that really interests me. I keep When I talk to people, I realize how rare it is that at the end of the day, you know, 15 years in, Chris and I own a hundred percent of a business at, you know, that's at, you know, quite a, quite a good scale. And we have uh, nobody to answer to. We don't have any LPs. We don't have any investors. Um, you know, we don't owe anything to anybody. And when I start thinking about the public market, um, you know, yeah, it's cool to see, you know, your net worth in a, you know, in a ticker and that kind of level of liquidity and stuff. But I just think it makes my life worse in so many different ways. Um, I, I love my life right now. Um, and it's not something we've really thought about much. Say more about how you create sort of interesting careers for people joining this, uh, this sort of, uh, to attract the, the actual talent needed. Do they get future liquidity or, or how else do you th- think about this? What do you mean? In, in terms of the, uh, the CEOs who, who sell or, who, or join. Oh, oh, the CEOs who join. I mean, you know, they're getting a very, very good, package that aligns with the results of the business. So if they're making us a lot of money, they're making a lot of money. Um, and uh, they're, you know, they're getting uh, the benefit of getting paid like a public company CEO or a private equity CEO 
But without all of the oversight, I mean, you know, a private equity CEO is getting, you know, weekly or biweekly reach outs from a private equity firm who's desperately trying to recognize a return within five years. Um, so, you know, a lot of these people who work for us are you know, very excited to just be trusted and left alone to run their business and, uh, you know, compound the business and grow at a reasonable rate. Um, so there's no outside, ridic- outsized ridiculous expectations on them. And when they, when we win, they win. And the, and the employees at Tiny, uh, uh, they, they love the mission or, or why do they join? Well, so each business is different and, uh, you know, people join the businesses because they're passionate about what they're doing and it aligns with their skills and we pay, um, you know, high market salaries and, you know, they get to live a great life. Totally. And, and maybe talk, why isn't this model more popular in ter- or, or what's, how, how are we going to, what needs to be true for more people to want to do it? Like who's better suited to start a studio versus who's better suited to start sort of a, a holding company like Tiny? Well, I think, um, you know, going back to what I said in the beginning of our interview about laziness and delegation, for a lot of people, um, their company is their baby. They are um, obsessed with it. And they love to be in every single detail. And for me, my personality, I'm very, very focused short term. Um, Like I get very deep and interested in a problem. And then as soon as I've started it or have made some progress on it, I love to delegate it off to someone else and then never think about it again for another six months. And so I realized I never had the, the hardcore CEO profile. I'm not um, somebody who you know, wants to build an organization and get buy-in and, you know, build a product. I'm much more passionate about making a decision, starting something, and then going off and starting or building something new and constantly doing that. And so, you know, I'm a mile wide and an inch deep. So I think that is a, um, that's a good approach. That's a good kind of um, personality type for an investor. If you're somebody who wants to be very focused and deep and, build a, you know, very, very meaningful company with a mission, I think investing is not for you and that people shouldn't go and build a holding company. Um, so, you know, to me, it's just a, it goes back to that thing of just, it's a result of my need to always be delegating and growing and doing new things. And what's the secret to, to doing this well? If, if some people say, if you're starting a studio, you should have some niche or, or expertise that allows you to find you know, proprietary talent. And what's the secret here for, for other people who, who want to start this and, and want it to be differentiated and successful? Well, you know, it's, it's a little hard. It's a little chicken or the egg where we were very lucky that we had a great business that we started with and we were able to build off a foundation because I think what allows us to do what we do and to be unique is that we have a base of capital that's permanent, that, that's me and, you know, me and Chris. And when we go and we buy a business, we can make a very quick decision. We don't have to worry about LPs and you know, an investment committee and all that kind of stuff. And I think that the incentives change and the way that people operate their businesses or their investment companies or holding companies changes based on the shareholders, or sorry, the, the investors. And so um, I think it is, it's a little unique to reproduce, but I think that you know the key the key kind of personality profile is somebody who's willing to leave people to do their thing. Right. And I think that's really, really hard. I think if I tried to start tiny 
five years into my career, I'd be a micromanager and I would not be able to leave these CEOs alone. And I've only learned, you know, by 15 years of doing it, that ultimately the hardest thing for a lot of people to do is just to leave alone, to realize that, you know, I've hired a smart, ethical person. They're in a great business. They're going to make mistakes, but directionally, I hope they're going and, you know, we'll make a decision about how it's working out on a quarterly or annual basis. Whereas I know people who run similar businesses and they're basically staring at their data, you know, 24 seven, they're obsessively digging through the data of all their businesses. They're worried about whether things are going well or not. And I think just slowing down the decision-making process and looking at the businesses on a monthly or quarterly basis has helped us a lot to make better decisions and to, you know, give our CEOs space. And I think that that's just hard. That's hard for certain types of personalities. Totally. And so uh, if we're doing this podcast in 2023 or 2025, uh, what will be different for Tiny? What are some of the strategic uh, decisions that you'll have to make uh, uh, in, in the near future? Well, I, I, to be honest, if you'd asked, I would have given you the wrong answer. We don't really think a lot about long-term planning uh, or you know, where we're headed. To me, I would be really happy to know that we've continued to buy more great businesses, that our CEOs and employees are happy, that you know we're more profitable and we're growing. Pretty simple thing, but that's ultimately what I'm looking for is having a good life where I work with good people and solve interesting problems. Yeah, uh, Andreas Klinger has actually spoken a, a bit with us and he referenced you about how remote work is really going to enable private equity or, or the rise of pro- this model. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the weirdest thing about finance is that they sit in offices together wearing suits and working 14 or 15 hour days. Because, you know, when I started learning about private equity, I thought, wow, this must be really complicated. And when you look at it from the outside, it seems that way. But at the end of the day, I think private equity is actually very, very well suited to remote work. It's, you know, almost every single thing that happens in private equity is able to, is something that you're able to do remotely. Um, We rarely meet people whose businesses we buy in person. You know, occasionally we will, obviously, if we close the deal, we'll fly them out and spend some time with them, spend lots of time on the phone. But almost everything we do, we do remote. And I think that I hope that all these people who work in miserable offices 15 hours a day in New York will eventually get to work from home and, you know, be diversified all over the world. Um, because, you know, it's a very homogenous industry with a certain way of thinking about everything. Um, it's very old school. So I hope it evolves over time. But uh, for now, I'm very happy to compete against them and have this unfair advantage. Totally. Last question, then we'll get you out of here. You mentioned you don't have uh, you know, meetings and you try, you try to have as few meetings as possible and, uh, and have a lot of free time like Warren Buffett. So where do you get the most leverage on your time then in terms of where do you want to be spending it and get the most leverage from it? Well, often, you know, I, get, I get a whole bunch of emails every day from people who want to jam on ideas or they just want to chat. And I, I'm a yes person of people. I'm very extroverted. So it's really difficult. For me, not to not to set up the whole balls, and I've just realized over time, so many things can be done via, and that if I say yes to everything, I end up kind of miserable and have no time to work. And so, 
you know, big emphasis on try. I try to do this and I go through periods where I am actually extremely busy and I'm on a whole bunch of phone calls and meetings and travel and stuff. Um, but what I really try and do is ensure that I have three to four quiet hours a day. So I might have a morning full of meetings and stuff, but I have some time to contemplate what's going on, look at what's going on in the businesses, look at deals and make better decisions. And I, again, like, I really think that misery comes out of tickers and busyness. So what I mean by tickers is um, like a stock ticker, but for your business, KPIs, metrics, customer acquisition cost, MR, are tracking all these numbers all the time um, and constantly. I find that generally results in things. So I try not to, I try to put blinders on and not look at too many numbers or details from the businesses on a regular basis and then try and keep my count below three to four, you know, busy hours a day and, you know, to varying success. Uh, right now I'm going through a period where I'm on a series of calls most mornings, but uh, I'm always trying to get to the Warren Buffett open calendar. Yeah, it's a great place to, to close. Our guest today has been Andrew Wilkinson. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a fantastic episode. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Great chat. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.